Did you just say wonton? Yeah, wonton. That's a soup. I know, it's a, it's a soup, but it's also a word. Wanton. W-A-N-T-O-N. Wanton. 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 Oh, come on! You're gonna pick on me for this? <laughs> Look, if it was anything other than, like, a Chinese soup you just called it, I would have let it go. But Wonton Bloodlust sounds like an absolutely god-awful 80s action movie, and I couldn't let that slide. <laughs> you know what? And fair uh, yes. enough. We are speaking Jackie in English. Jackie Chan in Wonton <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and illuminated co-host, George. Say hi, George. Well, as the uh, the not script has just a blank space here, I don't know if I'm supposed to start like humming in some sort of meditation rhythm and start floating into the air and communicating you know, mind to mind, but I can't do that, <laughs> and at least not before I've had my coffee, so I guess I'll just leave it at high. Yep, high's good. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best, not really amateurish best at this point, we're, we're kind of, I'm at least mid-tier, but you're like a real pro, so... We try I to give a mustache. Uh, yes, you do. We <laughs> we try to give a basic account of the major events of the in the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who are we covering this time on this blessed podcast? Wasn't there like a clause in my contract about me not being required to pronounce French? Uh, there was, but unfortunately, today we're both going to have to try to pronounce French stuff. But neither of us are versed in the pronunciation of French things. So apologies in advance. As will be made apparent <laughs> yeah. in the next few minutes. There's going to be so many baguettes Never over fear. there. There's going to be so many baguettes over there in Paris just pulling their, pulling their, you know, beanie off their, not their beanie, what do they call it? A beret <laughs> off their head beret. and stomping on their cigarette and like pouring out their bottle of wine and just shouting, no! <laughs> it's going to be great. You, I have no doubt. Yeah. So it seems, in fact, that you have chosen a Frenchman for today, a character who I actually have no idea who this is. I don't recognize the name, but the name is allegedly <laughs> Francois Fournier Salovy. Yeah, it's you're close. It's actually Francois Fournier Sarlovese. That's the correct pronunciation. <laughs> Actually, that, that's, the correct pronunciation would be like something like Salovez. Okay, I'm going to pretend. I'm going to stop pretending I have any idea how to say this. Um, but yes, I did indeed research a, a Frenchman. And of course, what are the French known for on our show? Do you hear the uh, truck now? <laughs> I did hear something. Yeah. It might have been a Frenchman sneaking up behind you <laughs> with a baguette, which is what they're known for. Yes. Um, and this this is true, but they're also known for a certain turn of the wheel, a uh, revolution, you might say. The yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think I started writing an episode about that uh, particular event when gave up, and then I gave up because my little obsessive, putrefying little mind couldn't like actually settle on one person to talk about and it just ended up being this like god-awful comprehensive history 
that would have taken like months and been obscenely boring. Um, so I gave up. But fortunately, Aaron is not burdened by such attention to detail. Uh, so he took he took up the torch <laughs> of liberty, so to speak. No, I, I struggled with this one for months. You know this. You know this was hard. This this dude, like just covering anybody on this show, I'm going nuts, like digging as deep as I can, but also trying to distill everything to be for a podcast. I should never, ever have tried to do the French Revolution. That was just a fool's errand. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. We can all agree on this. And yet, here we are on this blessed Friday. Is it Friday? It's Friday. It's Friday. I swear to God, if you dub in that stupid song from 10 years ago. I won't. I no. You. You're derailing um, the scriptorino. We don't have a script, Darren. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, revolution or whatever. Um, and that is what we we frequently refer for, for the, refer to the French <laughs> with regard to um, killing the uh, the baguette aristocracy and throwing people <laughs> in prison unjustly. Um, didn't we? Oh yeah, and like sadistic revenge. Yeah, the old, uh, Pierre Picard episode. That was a good one. Yeah, yeah. No, this... before he became captain of the Enterprise or whatever. Right, right. The the uh, and it's Pierre Picot, not Pierre Picard. Oh. <laughs> it was a long time. We're ago. in fine form today. <laughs> but look, if we're gonna talk about the French Revolution, we're gonna have to talk about the French Revolution eventually because this is a history podcast. And the main question I just know the listeners are going to have for me is like, why didn't you just choose Napoleon? Hopefully you'll understand by the time we're done with this. <laughs> I mean, is Napoleon going to make a little cameo appearance? He will make an appearance. Um, I was just really... Tr Even though he, you know, wasn't French. Look, <clears> when you're <throat> talking about Napoleon, you have to start talking about guys like Hitler. And I don't want to go down those rabbit holes anymore. I'm done. I'm done with the big... The big names of history. That's why I went with a funny story, one that could be told in an episode. And I still got sucked into the freaking rabbit hole. <laughs> but these are my favorite. You uh, know. Wait a minute. Wait, I just want to stop you there. So funny story. And you picked something from the French Revolution. Yes. Do you know about the French Revolution? <laughs> I read about this for like six months. <laughs> yeah. And here we will see the. The fruits of your labor, Ugh. no doubt. A poorly researched, poorly written spoof of actual history. Yeah. <laughs> a classic we talk about dead people vibe. Uh, but the listeners wouldn't have it any other way, even though the French ones are going to be not happy with me. But now that we've insulted the quality of our show once again, as is our way, I think it's time to get down to the history lab and finally face off the French Revolution. Bon voyage, mon ami. <laughs> that was one of the hardest cold opens we've ever done. Yeah, that was that was brutal. That was, else. <laughs> <laughs> that was really something else. Oh my god, I'm total. Oh my god, and I'm peeking like crazy too over here. <laughs> It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and it was the epic 20-year duel of the fates fit 
only for the baguettest of times. Join us as we peek into the life of Francois Fournier Salovez, one very hot-headed French fry who could not keep it holstered if all of Paris depended on it. I... I wrote that a long time ago. So, George, what's your favorite episode of Rick and Morty? Uh, That's a timely question, ironically, because I did write this before the incident with the Rick and Mortimer um, situation. I have literally never watched any Rick and Morty. I've watched like... I'm going to say by... All I know is that people who watch Rick and Morty are insufferable. So I'm just going to say my favorite episode is whichever one is the fucking last one and they shut up about that show. Yeah, th that's good. That's that's a good answer. And nothing, we would expect nothing less from a character such as you to have... Yeah, not intellectual enough to appreciate it. Yeah, you're right. To be fair... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, I, I have never watched Rick and Morty. I think I watched the Pickle Rick episode just to see what the meme was all about, and I was just disgusted. I was like, meh. I guess there was one that was kind of okay that I also watched, but that's neither here nor there. Should we have a serious question, or should we just move on? I mean, that that's up to you. You're you're running the show. Let's just move on. We got to get through this. <laughs> it's, and I don't want to dwell too long on the French Revolution, uh, the baguette, the baguette revolution, um, because, frankly, I'm watching my carbs. So, <laughs> Com <laughs> <laughs> computer, please bring up Francois Forny Sarlovies. Francois Fournier's Sarlovies. I don't know. There we go. Francois I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Um, so, George, what do your elf eyes see? I see... a uncomfortably tight set of pants. Yes. Um, and, like, a lot, lot of decoration. A lot of gold brocade kind of thing. A lot of them sewn on, gold thread designs. Uh, all of which adorn the figure of a man with sort of 2000s boy band hair, <laughs> um, but like a 2010s realtor face. It's kind of a mismatch, honestly. Um, <laughs> wearing, yeah, exceptionally tight red pants. Uh, like we're, we're talking like losing circulation on those babies. Um, kind of cool black boots, I've got to say. They've got like a little tassel that hangs off the front, but on like the top of the boot. Uh, which is kind of rad. A maroon, is that maroon jacket? Um, that's just covered in gold decorations and designs. A, he's sort of jauntily holding a saber straight down with the tip touching the ground. He has a little like capelet, like a tiny cape that only <laughs> goes to his waist. He's got the, uh, Looks like the fall of civilization happening behind him. I see, like, burning buildings and <laughs> lines of soldiers and fire and general despair. And looks like some paper crumpled up and thrown on the ground in front of him. Do you see the ghost? No, I don't see the Look ghost. behind the leg on the right. you see it? I see a foot. Yep. It's a ghostly foot. The whole ghost? <laughs> yeah. It's a ghost foot. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. So originally in this painting, he was standing with his legs far wider apart than they are now. <laughs> which, looking at it, probably looked kind of funny, which is I see why they, they ghosted it out of existence. 
but yes, this is uh, this is Francois of Sarlovez, uh, a rather epic-looking gentleman for the time. I will say, I knew nothing about this guy going in, uh, and but when I found this picture, I was like, "That's it. That's the one that's going in the dock because it's kind of epic." But with that, nice. And is this from a famous painter? Or? I don't know. I probably should have looked that up. But I just liked it. It just this image goes so hard. Cl typical podcast not giving credit. <laughs> <laughs> Attribution not required. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> I got to be honest. Let's see the, uh, the 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 artist is someone called Creative Commons. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pronounce that the French way though. <laughs> Ah, yes. Creative. Creative. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to be honest. I think I've said it already, but I've been working on this episode for six months. And I, when I say that, I don't mean six months of straight research. I have just been busy with ordinary life and work and researching this topic off and on when I get a chance and can stay focused. I have avoided the French Revolution for years on this show because of this exact problem. It's one of the most chaotic events ever recorded, and all the records are contradictory and fucked up because of the sheer polarization of the events. Like, think about how polarizing an event like January 6th has been. Now add real guillotines and imagine that the Trump people actually beheaded the miscreants on Capitol Hill, but then went on to behead Donald Trump and then each other. That's basically the French Revolution with fewer cigarettes and worse wine. Except the French Revolution had a decidedly left-leaning bend in the political spectrum, to say the least. For the Francois Fournier-Sarlovais story in particular, I think it's important to paint a delicious contextual picture of where all this happened in history. Um, because I was actually thinking about context today. You can't really have history without the context. In fact, most of the history is the context, but that was an incomplete thought, and so I shall continue. continue. <laughs> so Francois himself lived in France. Uh, color me surprised. Between 17... Every time, every time you say context, my mind is just telling me this time it's not going to be context, it's going to be Kanye. <laughs> no! We do, <laughs> we do context and content on this show. There is no Kanye involved. You can't do history without the Kanye. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, if you know anything about this time period in France, it was pretty much one chaotic shit parade after another. That's, that's a really blue-collar way of saying it, but that's pretty much what it was. And I don't mean to be rude, but France during this time was freaking crazy. Every time I read about France during these times, I have to back away in shock. The stuff we talked about with Haiti and Abraham Lincoln was pretty bad, but the French Revolution was like peak monkey mode for Europe. What's your take? I uh, it was it was quite horrifying. It was quite horrifying and also quite retarded in many ways. <laughs> Would you care like, to elucidate? You, I was going to say like you kind of got to hand it to them that they like they really went full retard in a way that few people had ever done before. Like which is in a way almost respectable. Like, you know, not only yeah, not only are we going to like murder all the priests and burn churches and stuff but we're also going to stop reckoning you know our calendar using the christian calendar like at least they took it to its logical logical conclusion instead of the kind of just you know limp-wristed revolution where you still 
use some of the things that you inherited and you just changed their names. Yeah. Um, that's a really, really good point. And I'm glad you mentioned that thing about the calendar. Cause that was one of the, one of the many things I kind of decided to just leave out of this because I was filling up the episode with so much content. I had, I had to stop. Oh, so yeah, they did institute a new calendar because the old one was too Christian, I guess. That's pretty much why, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because you don't want a calendar based around the idea of the birth of Christ. Right. And they had a, they, just like all the other, well, just like all the other revolutionaries, they want to set things back to year zero. Um, they want to pretend mm -hmm. like the past didn't happen and run from it, which is why history with these types of movements is really difficult because they're all liars. But anyway, French Revolution, peak monkey mode in Europe. And, you know, we talked about Haiti, but Haiti kind of makes sense. You know, it's a slave colony. Revolt or die in slavery, the choice seems kind of obvious, right? But France was super rich, super big, and had the largest population of any European country at the time. There was an old established regime that had seen France graduate from the Middle Ages, so-called uh, graduate, uh, and head right into, so-called, a golden age. Unfortunately... <laughs> For France, it was in Europe, which means that just like all the other European nations at the time, they were straight goofing off on the world stage. France was engaged. There was a lot of goofing there, off. There was a lot century. of a lot of goofing off. I think we can all acknowledge there was too much goofing off. It might it might have gone a little too goofy. <laughs> <laughs> so France, like all the other places, was engaged in colonization, conquest, trade, and all the other stuff that characterized a powerful European nation in its golden era. Not to say that European nations don't do this today. It was just overt back then. It used to be that you had English and Frenchmen pointing guns in your direction and taking over your village and stealing your bread, and now it's American and Euro powers sending corrupted food, addictive technology, and drugs into your midst and calling it foreign aid. <laughs> And also controlling your monetary supply. That as well. <clears throat> the, gloves are, the gloves are off. <laughs> the major European countries were expanding and basically taking over the planet. At the time, we didn't have the EU or any globalist stuff in place, so it was essentially a big race to see who could get the most stuff. It was a very brutal way of doing business, or as the British described it, jolly good fun. <laughs> There was a cost to all this in terms of money, people, energy, and blood. Amongst all the major things that were happening in European consciousness at the time, there was one major thing that was really popping off. The evolution of the mind. Which is kind of what Europe was doing all through the Middle Ages and into this era. Is that what Swedenborg was doing? That's Swedenborg was way ahead of these guys. These guys are monkeys compared to Swedenborg. <laughs> Ants, even. So let's talk. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about European uh, mindset, European thinking, and European consciousness. So basically, and this is I'm memeing it. So correct me if you feel it's if you if you feel you need to. Northern European consciousness was and Western European consciousness was basically warlike and sort of pagan until it was Christianized. Uh, they did have you know ethos and rules and gods and things like that beforehand, but things really got going when Christianity showed up. But for a long period after the Christianization of Europe, it was still very warlike and still, in many ways, very pagan. Christianity in Europe did indeed bring a lot of advancement in civil law, rights, and more. The arts, philosophy, science, and other helpful things like that flourished across all the land. Uh, this development occurred right alongside it, its own shadow, in the form of weapons technology, shady banking practices, and methods of deception. 
your thoughts. Uh, I'm going to keep it real with you, Chief. This is too abstract for me to comment on. I don't know where we're talking about or when. Oh, so. well, let me let me be a little bit clearer. We're talking like the 500-year window after, <laughs> after, the, after the Middle Ages. Um... Or, or the, I would say, 1200s or so. Um, so the part of the European mind that went down kicking and screaming was the competitive fighting spirit. And this is still with us today. We still have, you know, we're still very, pa not patriotic, I would say, but we still have, uh, I don't even know if we have those things anymore. But at least 20 years ago, people still, like, had a respect for soldiers, the armed forces. We believed there was justice in combat and that sort of thing. Um, at the same time, Europe was enjoying higher-minded things like philosophy, but right alongside it were developments of moral codes and systems. Uh, and uh, that warlike, ready-to-kill spirit was still pretty much left unchanged. Of course, like you already helpfully pointed out, this is all very broad language. And for all you Euros listening to my American accent recounting this information, please know that I understand that Europe is not a country. <laughs> European nations during these times were like a family of a dozen brothers, no sisters, no mom, and no budget constraints. <laughs> Which sounds like a great time. <laughs> True. So, this is all to say, the masculine was still untamed within the various cultures that existed in these colonial empires. But you could see the very beginnings of this masculine spirit slipping away already during the Enlightenment. The aristocracy in France was gallivanting about in fancy carriages obscenely elaborate costumes, having huge parties and ornate palaces, and generally becoming very decadent, visibly effeminate, and very silly. <laughs> this, there, was a, there were a lot of counter-movements to this kind of thing. Have you ever heard of muscular or masculine Christianity? I have not, actually. I believe that was a movement in Britain, where they realized that it was turning them into a bunch of little, like, simps, and they didn't like it. So they tried to make Christian, they tried to like bring back Christian themes of masculinity and, you know, work in stuff about the Crusades and stuff like that. Uh, I was doing some reading on it. This was at huh. least six months ago. Yeah, interesting. I have never heard of this. Yes. So uh, there were always counters to these sorts of things. Like a, a cultural counter to this was like the people who just wanted to be left alone on their farms. Um, there were some, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. <clears throat> so we look at the portraits of these guys, you know, even the one of, Sarlovays himself, um, and we see these, like, ridiculous wigs and pantaloons, and there's, like, this peacocking going around, and it's, like, there's this sort of, like, visibly, well, what would at least be visibly characterized as unchecked wealth and luxury being enjoyed by the monarchy in France, um, and this was in the last days of what was called the Ancient Regime, or the Ancien Regime, I don't know. Yeah, you can just say the, the Ancien Regime. Yeah, is that how it's Ancien. Ancien. Ancien okay. regime. Yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the largest slice of French land pie belonged to the church and the aristocracy. These two classes were referred to as the first and second estates, or orders. There was, however, a third estate, and this contained the most people of all. These were commoners, tradesmen, soldiers, moms, you know, normies. This is gonna. I have to warn you here. This is my uh, characteristically off base take on this, okay? So, this isn't. You gotta rely on George for hard dates and numbers. I'm trying to get you the the spirit of where we're at here. So, I'm also. I'd like to add a little something right here, if I may. Please do. 
about that, the, the largest slice of the French land pie belonged to the church and the aristocracy. So the church, just like any other society, also has a lot of, of levels in it. And the people in the church who had a lot of property, a lot of them were much more part of the aristocracy their whole lives than really part of the church. Like, a lot of the most powerful bishops were appointed exclusively for political reasons, um, you know, because of what the king wanted or what some powerful nobles wanted or that sort of thing. At the lower levels, most most of the clergy were, like, actually clergy. Um, and there were a few powerful churchmen who actually were sort of in it to be clergy. But the French were almost unique in just how bad things had gotten in their church hierarchy. Like, I think in the early 1700s, I think it was, uh, the king actually sort of went uh, against tradition a little bit and vetoed the appointment of a bishop of Paris because the guy was like vocally an atheist and the king was like, this is a little bit too much. Wow. Like the yeah. bishop should at least pretend to believe in God. <laughs> but that just goes to show you how yet for much of the the high level of the church, the part mm. that controlled lots of the land and stuff, it was really much more part of the aristocracy. The lower levels of the clergy, uh, who of course also suffered and died in huge numbers during the revolution, um were where the actual sort of church was. Yeah. In many and cases. That's because of course a lot of the a lot of the bishops um you know sided with the revolutionaries because it was a they saw they saw as it a means to power like what's his name Talleyrand mm. yeah not all well, of them that's... some did die horrifically too um but yeah the France was a very troubled situation religiously yes and we don't no ex I mean there's a million reasons why that would be but uh it was it was a uh <clears throat> chaotic situation to say the least as far as the church was concerned and it appears to me and you can correct me if I'm wrong it appears to me that there was almost no chance of fixing it without revolution perhaps what perhaps yeah not not that I'm advocating for it I'm just saying it's it's this stuff is all tied up with all kinds of things, and again, this this all reminds me of the Protestant Revolution. I mean, Reformation, um, <laughs> which which had a lot of the same issues, right? Um, they were looking at these these bishops and these guys and whatnot who had all of this, you know, finery and and whatnot, and they they had access to the Bible, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's just it's a it's a, it's the distinction of a of a, a noble elite from the normies, right? And it's growing and growing and growing and growing. Um, but here's the thing. The third estate, <clears throat> these uh, these normies, which, you know, they're fine. That's no dig on them. The third estate were pretty much cool with their stations in life as long as they had enough to eat, a place to rest their head, and enough income to raise their children. Um, but, of course, when these things become threatened, the normie has no choice to wake up. And this occurs before all revolutions. Uh, <clears throat> and, again, it's not a pejorative. Normal people are important and good. <laughs> so... The normie has a daily schedule, bread, and a position in society. Um, they know what they are. You know, they're a baker, they're a butcher, tinker, tailor, soldier, spy, or, or like that sort of thing. But if there's some sort of disaster where these stations get disrupted, it is the absolute duty of the first and second order to restore these things if they are to prevent their own destructions at the hands of the third order. 
Um, this was, of course, not done leading up to the French Revolution, which is why everything got so crazy, at least part of it. So, of course, we should we should also note there that outside of, well, particularly Paris, most of the Third Estate were actually doing all right. Um, yeah. It was really the Parisian urban population that got this whole thing going. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, a mob of 10,000 can terrorize a city of 10 million, even though it's only 1%. And exactly. that's why after they seized control of the central government, they had to go march their genocidal armies out to literally genocide the peasants in the countryside who didn't want to be revolutionaries. <sighs> You're getting ahead of me. Just fuck cities. That's what I'm saying. Fuck <laughs> cities. Agreed. <clears throat> Bitch-ass Parisians. <laughs> If you're hearing that sound, it means it's time for our patron break. We don't have ad breaks and we talk about dead people because we like to keep things in the family, so to speak. So we're going to start off with our Time Monarch level. Time Monarchs present! There they are. Look at them in all their glory, standing up there upon their golden thrones. Yes, they're standing on them. They don't sit. That's how badass they are. When they're not standing on their golden thrones, they are marching about in a custom-made mech suit that allows them to travel through time. Thus, Time Monarch. And our first and greatest Time Monarch is Jacob, who is... <laughs> the Time Monarch thing is our highest tier. It's $50 a month, which isn't that bad. <laughs> it's really not, if you think about it. Um, but Jacob doubled that for no extra reward except for me writing him a little note and sending him some merch, which, again, he didn't ask for anything because he's the man. Jacob has contributed over $3,000 to this show over the course of his patronage here, and we can't thank him enough for that. So without further ado, let's give it up for Jacob. And then we have our other time monarch, Adam, who also gives $50 per month. He has met the time monarch requirement. And he has sent us $840 throughout his career on Patreon. This patronage, guys, is so important. And our Time Monarchs are our, they're, they are our lights in the darkness. Uh, they're, they're the sun and the moon, because there's only two of them right now. But they, uh, they keep the lights on and, and uh, you know, help us pay some of the bills. I mean, there, there is costs associated with hosting this show. Like, it, it's, not, it's not cheap to host a big show like this. So thank you very much, Jacob and Adam, our two-time monarchs, and now back Jeez. to the show. Now, when we read about the American War for Independence, we find some inspiring... I'm sorry. You're good. <laughs> I'm taking another run at this line, though. <laughs> oh, my God. We're 35 minutes in. We're not even halfway. Jesus Christ. Uh, 35. Set. Okay. This is so much fun, though. I'm having so much fun right now. All right. <clears throat> now, when we read about the American War for Independence, we find some inspiring stuff packed in there. People were fighting for God and country. Rights were God-given, not state-provided. There was a moral backbone to the simple American that had begun to decay in Europe, especially after the hardliner fundies like the Puritans and others like them started to get on ships to start anew after years of persecution and war. And who can blame them? Things were brutal. And suddenly there's this blessed land you can go to with no British people. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, and start start fresh. Like, okay, so that's what I'm saying about, like, the church. Like, it's either revolution or separation. That appeared to be the, the paradigm that people were facing. 
Um, the authority of the Catholic Church was still firmly in question after the scandals leading up to and surrounding the Reformation. Um, you know, and I don't like it, but that's that's the way it was. People saw it that way. Um, every class up and down the power hierarchy was fighting about Protestant this and Catholic that. Well, the American story is very, very simple. Protestants could choose to stay in Europe and risk dying in some church war, or they could hop on a little boat called the Mayflower and get well beyond the grasp of the Papists and Cromwells. I don't know why I wrote that line. I think I just wanted to say Papist. <laughs> My apologies. I mean, Cromwell was also a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. We should, have a, we should have a ticker going to the corner. How many people, countries, social movements, <laughs> ideas, geographic features I refer to as a bitch this episode. This is new. <laughs> a new feature for the for the live for the live cast. Yeah, that feature is a bitch. <laughs> Control yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry, I haven't had any nicotine today. Oh, you must be aching. Oh. Just taking it out on you. You, you. you usually have like three or four of those things stuffed in your cheeks like a freaking chipmunk when we, <laughs> when we do these. I know, but I'm out of them. Oh, you should have told me. I could have air-mailed some to you <laughs> by helicopter. I don't know. So anyway, mm. these very simple people of the book, you know, they're like, you know, it says the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. They're like, we got to get out of here because we're getting picked on and we don't fit in. And these people are becoming insane. So, again, this is a really broad picture of what was going on in Europe. Um, so these people left and they started what amounted to a Christian nation in America by merely arriving there. Simple. They went out in the prairie and the mountains with their guns and their Bibles and their women and they multiplied. And their travels made them as tough as nails, and their country Protestantism produced a simple morality that could be brutal, close-minded, and naive, but it largely kept them protected from the dangers of the Babylon they were fleeing. This is part of why the Americans were culturally non-interventionist in European wars. They wanted nothing to do with those freaky Freemason people. <laughs> they were simplifying, right? Um... At least this is my interpretation of this history from bird's eye view. The point I'm trying to make here is that the European mind I keep referring to had a breaking point where a large number of people were just done with the bullshit surrounding church politics and wanted to be left alone so they became Americans. And this simplicity might be why, and even me simplifying this might be why Europeans see Americans as unsophisticated cowboys, because our culture is rooted in very simple ideas. You read your Bible, you say your prayers, and you shoot anyone who tries to take your freedom. And also, don't do whatever the hell Europe is doing. So uh, they took all this, these are the words I live by. Yeah, they <laughs> they took the good and they left the bad. I mean, and they they made themselves simpler. I, I don't know how you can fault them for that. Um, this is this is where we're going to get into a discussion about IQ, and I don't like to talk about that, but it is what it is. So here's the thing: the Europeans, however, are not wrong about Americans being unsophisticated. Originally, and even still today, Americans are very simple people. Uh, so their constitution after the American War for Independence was relatively straightforward. It was like, them's the rules. That's it. Don't violate it. And the French saw this and generally liked it. But the benefit of a nation being made up of simple people is that you could pretty much rely on them to do their thing and keep it to themselves. Again, their motivation was basically to be left alone. They weren't interested in making any statements beyond that. The trouble is... The French are very different from the uh, Anglos and others that started America. Firstly, they were, generally speaking, pretty smart, decently educated, 
and they had a very different way of doing politics. For example, demonstrations were big in France and still are today. Honor, or at least the, the appearance of honor, was extremely important in the upper crust of society, which is why the Swiss Guard pretty much died to the last man defending King Louis when the revolutionaries were at his gate. Do you know anything about that situation? There's a Sabaton song about that situation, my friend. Oh, well, of course. That's Is that all you know about that situation? <laughs> no, I, I know I know a good deal about it. Would you, um, would you care to give us a cookie? Well, a cool thing is that they the place where they did their last stand defending uh protecting the the pope while he was retreating into this secret tunnel that led to this fortress in Rome which they were on which the uh the army was unable to take so the pope was safe in there but they had their last stand in what's called the Teutonic Cemetery and to this day you can only get in to visit the Teutonic Cemetery if you request entrance in German because technically it's supposed to be uh, the Teutonic Cemetery Cemetery is supposed to be a place only for former citizens of the Holy Roman Empire to visit, or rather citizens of the former Holy Roman Empire. So you can only get in if you request entry in German. Then the Swiss guards will let you in. Fascinating. That's fascinating. I'm glad you knew that. Um, so anyway, next time I go to Rome, God willing, I'm going to ask to be let in there in German, and hopefully they let me in. <laughs> sure hope so. So anyway... Um, so whether the revolutionaries, <laughs> oh God, whether the revolutionaries realized it or not, they still had French expectations for things, even though they were changing the calendar, the names of things, getting rid of everything, going back to year zero, they still had these culturally ingrained things that were simply French. Um, the culturally American thing to do is to go to another continent to avoid things and start fresh. And then if the bastards follow you, you light them up. So when colonial American normies wake up, uh, or woke up, it was because there was a British soldier suddenly living in their house and everything was getting taxed again. That's the kind of thing it took, you know, the Boston Massacre, which whether or not that was propaganda, I don't know, but that was the story that got the fire going. So the French did things differently during the revolution? Would you say it was different from the American Revolution a little bit? Yes, I would say that the American Revolution wasn't quite as nice as we like to think it was. Yeah. Um, you know, the people who didn't want to be in revolution in the revolution who had to flee to Canada because their houses were burned probably would have a rather negative view of it. Um, so I don't think like ours was as nice and neat and like happy, revol you know, or sort of happy revolution where we all get along as we like to think about it. But no, the French one was un undeniably much more horrific. Undeniably. Uh, according to that, undeniably. That's, that's one thing we will get to also. But the French Revolution was really a lot about display and demonstration. It wasn't enough to defeat an enemy. You had to crush and humiliate them as well. Um, for example, you had to hold their severed head up above a jeering crowd or literally castrate a fallen enemy while he's still alive. And by the way, I am not kidding. That second thing happened so frequently, wounded counter-revolutionaries would shoot themselves if they saw a bunch of women with butcher's knives show up. Because that was a thing. Gangs of women who castrated wounded men. Uh, it didn't stop it, but at least they didn't have to live through it, right? Um... Can you can you hear me getting fired up? I haven't gotten this fired up since we covered a commie. I can I can hear you getting fired up. Okay. It's that castration issue. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> now, <clears throat> what could possibly cause people to have this amount of rage, especially Freemasonry? 
Well, yes, we'll get to that as well. <laughs> you know enough about this that we're we're having a good time, a good tête-à-tête, one might say. <laughs> oh, we're using those French terms. Hey, now. it's it's on it's on theme. It's it's on the mise en scène or whatever the hell. Uh, That's not what that means. <laughs> what does that mean? I'm not even going to correct your abuses of French expressions anymore. <laughs> okay. Continue. Uh, so how do you get this angry, especially when your call sign is equality, liberty, and brotherhood? These are all good things, yes? And these are all things we kind of... Mm. Eh, well, I know the equality <laughs> thing is arguable. Brotherhood is arguable. Kind of cringe. It's a little cringe. (laughs) It turns out that the collective idea about these high-minded sounding things was different from the reality. The reality was, at least in the public's mind or the revolutionary's mind, was that equality, liberty, and brotherhood actually meant revenge, license, and conformity. And that sounds strange because, as we said, this is characterized as left wing, but we're starting to see the same phenomenon nowadays. Conformity, conformity, conformity to an ever-changing set of rules. And, of course, most people, when they say equality uh, on in this revolutionary mind, they do mean revenge. They do want to hammer down the tallest nail, but they want to keep hammering until that nail is all the way through the wood and puncturing somebody's tire. <laughs> um French normies, unlike American normies, woke up after long and educated talks in coffee houses. They had some smart-sounding ideas in their head, heads that were put before them in the form of pamphlets that seemed to appear out of nowhere, powerful speeches, signage, and other forms of propaganda. Their general unrest and civil discomfort was almost entirely attributed to the old regime and the church. And the only solution offered was bloody revolution, which we also actually cover this was before your time on the show when we covered joseph goebbels um a common propaganda tactic is to scare people into a corner and offer them only one solution and the solution that was offered was kill the bitches right um Mm. there's no way out of this you'd better pick up a knife right very common propaganda tactic it's been used it's used all the time especially now it's the but the solution they give you now is to take antidepressants and I don't know, get sick in some form, you know, eat more, you know, crappy food and consume more media, like that sort of thing. Those are the solutions offered. It won't work forever, but that's just, that's another thing. Um, So yeah, they blame the old regime, they blame the church. So bereft of the ability to imagine another way, the revolutionaries went full monkey mode. And unlike their fellow revolutionaries in Haiti, they didn't really have the same level of grievance that would even seem to justify this level of wanton blood, lo- like bloodlust, bloodthirst. Did you just say wanton? Yeah, wanton. That's a soup. I know it's a, it's a soup, but it's also a word. W a n t o n. Wanton. 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 Oh wanton. come on! You're gonna pick on me for this? <laughs> Look, if it was anything other than like a Chinese soup, you just told it i would have let it go but wanton bloodlust sounds like an absolutely god-awful 80s action movie and i couldn't <laughs> let that slide you know and fair enough we are speaking uh, in English. yes jackie chan in wanton bloodlust <laughs> i need to get you some nicotine pouches stat <laughs> wanton wanton i've always said it wanton though that's how i've always said it. so i've sounded like an idiot for years uh, i've probably said it on this very podcast 
Wonton blood. Oh, God, I didn't think we were going to have this many laughs talking about the French <laughs> Revolution. <laughs> that, oh, might, that might be our opener okay. right there. Anyway, so it's all, to, to put it lightly, it's all quite something. Uh, and for the full context of my research into this, a couple of bird's eye view pieces of media I listened to in preparation for this presentation, actually, like, they all kind of concluded pretty much the same thing. Not all of them, but some of them concluded the same thing. I had concluded before I even found these podcasts slash videos. The French Revolution is dark enough for me to say it feels like demons were pulling the strings. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. Okay, I don't want to exaggerate, so it, w it was pretty bad. And there is actual diabolical, like, evidence of diabolical activity in the historical record. And I don't mean to say that there were head, there were actual demons at the head of this thing. But there, there were... probably were. But there probably were. But there were people who believed there were, and they were trying to use demons to steer this bastard. Okay? Okay. Doesn't mean you have to believe it. They believed it. And we've discussed the importance of magic, word spells, and wizardry on this show many times before. You can't get away from it because I am a media man, I think, in those terms. The French Revolution is an apex, apex example of that exact thing in action. And this is where we got the Illuminati, um, which people don't believe are real, but they're, they were slash are, I really don't know. They were, at least then, very, very real. Um, as well as the Freemasons who were, and other secret societies were 100% behind the scenes, scenes feeding word spells, logical poison, nihilistic and materialistic garbage into the public mind. I invite the listener to go read a couple of paragraphs of Johann Adam Weishaupt's uh, Wikipedia page, because it's right there. Um, the, the Bavarian Illuminati was pushing egalitarianism and democracy out to society while not being egalitarian or democratic at all within its own walls. Good for thee, but not for me. Hypocrisy disguised as philanthropy. Again, much like American colonization in the modern era. We send aid and want to spread democracy, and these people get drugs, addictive technology, and a fake democratic illusion and the stamp of a global citizen. That is 100% a spell. Conquering without firing a shot. So back to France. And you're probably wondering where Sarlevez comes in here. He does, I promise. But it was an excuse to talk about the French Revolution. All right? He is funny, though. <laughs> so back to France. The most willing and active members of distributing these spells and this logical poison were the moderately educated midwits who weren't poor and had... The eternal enemy of all that is good and true. I know, I'm going to say midwit a lot. Through every society. I'm going to say midwit a lot because there's just no other way. There's no other way to describe this. These are people who have slightly more prestige than a gong farmer. Uh, think teachers, accountants, preachers, merchants, podcasters. Um, these are people who are most easily entranced by, this, by these spells because they're just comfortable enough to not be connected to reality, just disconnected enough from nature to think that democracy was an incorruptible mode of being for a state, just comfortable enough to believe that the disadvantaged could simply be paid out of their station, which, again, the, the midwits are highly empathetic people, like, to a fault. Um... And again, you offer them a simple solution to solving the world's problems. They're just going to they're going to go with it and you can't shut them off. These were the woke people of the time. I mean, no offense, but that's what they were. The Americans had a similar thing in the American Revolution or not the American Revolution, but the American Civil War called the Wide Awakes. Similar in fashion, different in behavior. They they called themselves the Wide Awakes, right? Th these people, they're always the same people. I don't know how else to explain it. 
They're the most entranced, convinced, and angry people on the whole scene. They really did believe in equality, liberty, and brotherhood, but they didn't realize that most people under them saw equality as revenge. Like I said, liberty is license and brotherhood is conformity. They would have to be shown the cost of these mistakes before they would stop running people through the guillotines, usually in the form of the midwits themselves being on the block. Your thoughts before I move on to my next point. Another thing about the sort of the midwits is that they usually are somehow able to delude themselves even when they're wielding power into thinking that they're still at the bottom rung of society. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they're able to justify it in their putrid, sad little minds of killing people who are far more poor and disadvantaged than them in the name of their revolution because they somehow are able to think of themselves as still being oppressed and on the bottom when they're literally wielding the power of life and death over people. Yes, they see themselves as the protagonists. And this this is the this is the freaky thing about magic is it absolutely takes 100% advantage of that. It says you are the guy, you are the winner, you're the guy who has to do this. Uh, this is demonstrated rather well um by a video by some magician where he fools a kid into thinking he's in a he's in a zombie apocalypse. He really starts to believe the story. And by the end of it he's acting like a hero because he believes it. Um, that's what these guys are, except Satan's driving them, not some funny magician on television. I now refer to the bell curve meme. Yes, we're going there. Have you ever seen one of these memes, George? As always, yes. Yes, okay. I've seen all memes, Aaron. <laughs> we know. <laughs> I am the danger. <laughs> <laughs> Let me describe to the audience what I'm looking at here. For those of you who don't know, a bell curve is a population IQ distribution chart. At the lower end of the spectrum of the IQ, you've got, like, your caveman-looking guy, right? And his quote is, Mate, I trust my instincts. If it worked for me, gran, it will work for me. Simple as. And then on the high end of the spectrum, you've got quotes like, It is perfectly rational to trust in your deep instincts since they evolved through generations of evolutionary pressure. And in the middle... <laughs> You have a soy jack and a Reddit symbol, and they say, I'm going to need a source for that. <clears throat> that is the midwit. They sit right in there, and they're the e most easily deluded and fooled people on the planet. I hate to say it. Sorry, sorry, but you don't come to this podcast for nonsense. <laughs> the Third Order French were in the middle. Educated, decently, living in Paris, living it up, thinking they're the victims, crying in the coffee shop. It's a tale as old as time. This is the trouble. The trouble with midwits is that they think they're smart. The nice thing about most dumb people is that they're not smart and they accept it. Midwits are smart enough to read a book and mistake being dazzled by big words, data, and new ideas for total comprehension. In fact, if there's a midwit listening to this, they're gonna be befuddled. That isn't, that isn't how we gain knowledge is big words and data and science. These people can easily be tricked into states of frenzy and moral decay by words, social pressure, demonstrations, and other fancy tricks. For example, the cult of reason during the revolution. The existence of a cult of reason shows that the midwits of the day were smart enough to understand that logic and reason were extremely important, but not smart enough to realize that even logic, uh, that even logic and reason have a limited mileage. In fact, in the wrong hands, reason can lead directly to very, very logical, but ultimately destructive ends. So you can reason your way into doing very stupid things, including murder. And Alfred Hitchcock's uh, movie Rope is an excellent demonstration of peak midwittery. 
It's a story where two college students convince themselves that it is good for them to murder a fellow student because he is weaker in mind than they are. And they get their comeuppance in the form of top wit, portrayed by Jimmy Stewart in the end, which is fun to watch. But until the very end, it's like, guys, you killed a guy. You're gonna go to jail. But Midwit thinks, this is correct because my narrative says so. And it isn't until their head is on the block that they get it. It's unfortunate, but it all it is is it's basic hypnotism on a mass mass scale. George, your thoughts? Great movie as well. Oh, very good movie. That's one of my favorite Hitchcocks. Mm-hmm. Do you have any further additions? I was I was just gonna say the the whole cult of reason thing. This literally is Reddit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like go 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 through and just read all the comments made by a mod on a subreddit and they they literally think that they are some sort of priest of knowledge who must must protect you know the peasants from their own self-destructive tendencies right they're they're even if that means banning them from the subreddit they're they think which is the equivalent of course of being put on the guillotine right <laughs> <laughs> they think in terms of movies they're living a movie and they're the hero Right? They have to save everyone from themselves. And like children, they end up getting a lot more people hurt and a lot more people involved who wanted, simply wanted nothing to do with them. But in their ridiculous zealotry for whatever it is that, that is the order of the day, and usually it's something like equality, they end up creating a much more unequal society, a much more, conf if they can get to a society, a much more confused way of living. People live in fear and they're afraid of, to say what they think. Because midwits are, ah, shit, I don't know how to explain it. They're battle droids. They're battle droids. So basically, what emerged to bring about the French Revolution was a bunch of confused, traumatized, zealous proto-redditors in the form of people like Robespierre, who would eventually produce their own murderers by spreading ideas that normies were not programmed to handle. This was on the economic side of, and political side of things, um, the Christian side of things. Um, but what you got on the European pagan side of things, going back to what I was saying earlier, um, was our very own Francois Fournier Salovez. You probably didn't think he was going to be in the episode at this point. <laughs> I was going to say, we're only like an hour and ten minutes in, so we're making good time. Yeah. We've got to his name. <laughs> so Francois grew up during all... This is, like, this is like an old school We Talk About Dead People oh, episode. This is classic. This is an instant like I was going to say, we got we got way too Germanic there for a while, where we were like, we had the stopwatches out. It was like, yes, we are now nine minutes in. It is time to conclude this section and move on to item 37 on the chart. <laughs> <laughs> we got way too Germanic about it. The like, ah, uh, yes, we have ended within our five-second window of ideal podcast length. <laughs> <laughs> well, what style is this? Is this just Aaron? <laughs> I think this this is just pure, unadulterated Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> Top notch. Okay. So Francois Fournier grew up. He saw all this stuff happening, but he was still just a, a Frenchman and a soldier. And the reason I picked him out of all the revolutionaries is for one, he's an absolute card. And two, despite being embroiled in all this revolutionary thinking and being a revolutionary himself, he was still just extremely stereotypically French in his demeanor, which is automatically funny. I'm sorry, Frenchies. I'm sorry. Uh, soldiers are special in history. 
no less around this time when European conflicts were becoming industrialized. I think of the, particularly, to go back to movies, as is my American way, I think of the portrayal of General Shukov in The Death of Stalin as a good meme for how a lot of soldiers actually were. They didn't have a dog in the fight, they were the dog, and they were going to fight. It barely mattered what it was for most of the time. What's a quote from General Shukov in The Death of Stalin? What's a good one? I'm going to go represent the entire Red Army at the buffet. <laughs> he's good. Um, but he's he's just a soldier, right? He doesn't care about who like the politics of this. He'll say the political things, but he's he's about like, you know, getting the job done, right? And next to all yep. all of the uh the midwits in the uh at the at the time of the death of Stalin, um he just looks like a like a brute and it's kind of refreshing when you see him in the Oh, there's movie. oh, I I've got a good one. I've got a good one. Go for it. When uh when Khrushchev tries to recruit him in on their uh the, their plan and he he pulls this whole serious demeanor and is like this is a serious violation of the mandates of the presidium i'm going to have to report this to the central committee of look at your fucking face <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> you can see in that movie that he was just <laughs> excited that somebody was finally going to have the balls to get into a real fight right like that's kind of what we are here like if you're a fighter you're good like you you're just we kill things that's what we do so soldiering uh, was a career, and it's, it still can be, but not in quite the same way. But amidst all this intellectualized madness, soldiers were still just soldiering. And revolutions are strange times to be a hired gun. Loyalty's in short supply because everyone has reasons to switch sides. Ideology comes into play in the course of determining where one will fail, as opposed to simple tribalism, nationalism, or any of the other reasons one might pick up a rifle beneath a battle flag. The French army itself was a cluster. That's all I'll say. Everything changed in the... In the <laughs> de- cluster what? It's just a cluster. It's, a, it's nuts. <laughs> trying to track where everybody was at all this time is like a nightmare. And trying to... Do, like, the best information you can get on this stuff is all in French, so I had to use, like, Google Translate and stuff. Oh. Yeah. So translating all of this stuff was... You know, there was probably some mistranslations. Now, if I make a mistake on some of this stuff, I do apologize. I'm doing my very best. But anyway, so everything changed, and little remained stagnant, including the titles of offices and institutions, which were in constant flux. There was a constant change of loyalty, and it was hard to know, like, what you were going to be fighting about at any given moment. You, you, you barely knew if your general was, um, or your, your captain, or whatever, what have you. You barely knew if he was going to, you know, turn you on the other ten guys in your platoon. You know, like, or your platoon, God. I don't know the terminology. In your squad, whatever. Um, Fournier, for example, entered the, entered the army in 1791, two years between, uh, before the outbreak of the war in the, I think it's Vendée? The Vendée, The Vendée. Yes. This conflict was something like a counter-revolution, except these people didn't, I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize them, they just mostly wanted nothing to do with it, but they were pushed. Um... The now pro-revolutionary French government at the time had introduced new conscription laws, and a bunch of people were not down with the revolutionary government. Specifically, working-class people like farmers, woodsmen, etc. wanted nothing to do with fighting for the government. Now, before I get into this, is there anything you want to say about it? Um, all, also, the as is, in fact, a, a current sort of rhetorical divide today, people out in the countryside weren't too keen on being told oh yeah we're also taking away your religion 
Yeah. Yeah. And your calendar. Like they, they didn't like all these fucking Reddit mods from Paris trying to like <laughs> hang their priests. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's again, this is so familiar to today. It's kind of hilarious in a way. Like, how did we get to this again? This is stupid. But the midwits have easily led by their noses with fancy words and lots of marketing money. Um, because they, they're laptop Americans. They, they stole that term from a friend. And he probably got it from somewhere else. I don't know. But they live in a world of illusion. It's really interesting. They, they listen to music. and You know, I, actually, I could compare this to the recent firings at Google and Amazon where they got rid of all those coders. You ever, did you see that TikTok video that girl put out about, like, how she was fired and how her ordinary day was at Google? No. Oh, God. She starts her day with, like, a giant coffee from a specialized coffee bar in the building. She goes to hot yoga in the building, um, and she basically answers a few emails and sits on a few Zoom calls, and that's her day. Well, she got fired for being useless, right? But they fired a ton of people like that. That's a person living, like, in a trance. They're, they're spellbound. They're, they're, they're sort of free-floating, and they go where the wind blows them. Uh, they're they're almost like hollow people from Dark Souls, uh, and that's not an insult. It's just it's just the truth. And I I know I'm being kind of harsh on this one, but that's what that is. So the Vendée uh, resistance was limited, and the Vendée uprising was put down pretty quickly. Though its numbers swelled to eighty thousand combatants. These are all estimates, by the way, and none of this is solid because remember they're all liars. The people who write, wrote were writing this story. And the government killed about 200,000 people in putting this down. Yes. Yes. Um, um, up to a quarter of the population of the region was exterminated by the government Republican forces. Yes. The Vendeans were able to take out about 30,000 estimates. We don't know. French Republic soldiers, but their own casualties are pretty well unknown outside of these large estimates that are like, okay, so there's just no people there anymore. Hunt, like thousands and thousands and thousands of people because after the conflict the actual uprising the french because they're big on demonstration uh the republic sent more troops into the vendee to basically just kill everyone men women and children who were all considered counter-revolutionary by the government and the revolutionaries there is an argument and i can't even believe i have to say this there's an argument about whether or not this was technically considered a genocide but when you're arguing about whether or not a government killing thousands of civilians is a genocide it hardly seems prudent to me to argue about technicalities <laughs> if you're arguing about that you might be a reddit mod uh-huh actually i need a source to say <laughs> that the vendee uh massacre was a genocide it doesn't it doesn't qualify as a genocide no yeah. No. Remember, if you ever see your local Reddit mod attempting to like, obtain political office, you know what you have to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's that time again, and this time we're going to cover our next two levels within the Patreon range. We've got Ray, Spotted Nymph, Anaxacorgus, I hope that's I'm pronouncing that right, uh, Eric Olson, IDG, Jeremy, Joe, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's about it for our lore keepers and shovel captains. So first off, lore keepers come to the stage. Yay. Ah, Ray has given us almost $400 since her, her uh, the beginning of her patronage. She's been with us for three years and it is awesome. Spotted Nymph, our other lore keeper has paid 
80 throughout their lifetime here. Anaxacorgus, the other lore keeper, has paid 13 pounds per month because I suppose he's not from here, is he? But he has contributed $192 to this show, and we couldn't be more grateful. So let's give it up for our lore keepers, yeah? Yeah, everybody, let's clap. Let's clap for the lore keepers. Yeah, the, you know, lore keepers are big nerds, so they need all the all the encouragement they can get. Next level, shovel captains. Let's bring up our shovel captains. Everybody bring up the shovel captains. Wee! Look at them. Look at them. They have their golden shovels, and they're out there in front looking like kings. <clears throat> Excuse me. I say kings because they're. I think they're all men, but <laughs> can't be sure with all of these names. Our shovel captains are Eric, IDG, Jeremy, and Joe. Thank you, shovel captains. Our shovel captains have bravely led us into the future and into the past with their golden shovels of glory. If you would like to become a shovel captain, it's $10 a month, and we're super grateful for that. And if you'd like to become a lore keeper, that's $15 a month. So yeah, that's it for our shovel captain and lore keeper tiers on Patreon. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back to the show now. No, the massacre of the Vendée was a genocide, full stop. And I don't care if you want to argue about whether or not it was justified or ma equality or ma liberty. Doesn't matter. That's what it was. It doesn't matter what the justification was, midwit. It was a genocide. Categorically a genocide. So anyway, I'm getting real fired up. I should probably... You know what? Just for the listeners. Let it go. Uh, Let it go, man. <laughs> I am three weeks... I want to see the flames. I want to see the flames. All right. But just so the, the listeners... Flames in which the Reddit mods will burn. Just so the listeners know, <laughs> I am on week three of no coffee. So this isn't the caffeine talking anymore. This is this is the fire that burns within. So anyway, mm, this kind of horror was the horror that Fournier found himself wrapped up in on a daily basis. And again, he was just a soldier and a Frenchman, and he was excellent at both of them. So Francois was the son of a man who owned a cabaret. Say it with me. Classic. <laughs> that that is that is pretty classic. Can I actually? Um, you want to get hop in? in just add some big historical thing here so i as much as anyone else enjoy you know piling on in the whole surrender monkey you know yeah. dialogue about france but the fact of the matter is the french were an extremely militaristic and militarily effective nation for the past thousand years leading up to world war ii when they surrendered in a couple weeks um part of that was location their their European neighbors were for most of their history not United United countries, but little collections of independent states, which means that when you're a centralized United country, you don't have to really worry about when you're France for most of the Middle Ages, you don't have to worry about Germany invading you because Germany is a collection of small states or Italy um, or Spain, which of course did eventually unify, um, but not till still till pretty late. And so France was kind of in a really good position as the only really centralized state in the whole region. So I don't, I don't want to give them too much credit for the, being militarily successful because, you know, when you're 20, it's not that impressive to be able to fight like five 10-year-olds, but still. <laughs> I like how you put that. And thank you for that added context. Um, I love this. Con all this content. This is like context the episode. I love it. So anyway, Francois was the son of a man who owned a cabaret. Say it with me. Classic. <laughs> the eldest of the six children of Jean Fournier and Marianne Bonne. I'm sorry. I, I apologize, French people. 
He was educated by monks at St. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna anglicize all these. I apologize. At St. Gauden, Gauden, um, recognized for his intelligence by the bishop himself. This education allowed him to get his job as a scribe to a local bailiff, but it didn't last very long. Craving excitement and possibly, possibly, and I say possibly about 90% fleeing the wrath of the husband of a married woman with whom Fournier might have been sharing his baguette, Francois left... Oh my god. <laughs> Justified. Francois left his hometown of Sarlat, or I don't know if it was... Yeah, he was born there. Uh, and joined the army at the age of 18, enlisting with the Garde Constitutionnelle du Roi, um, the Constitutional Guard, uh, a royalist regiment, by the way. Um, now, everybody had political opinions back then, but I'm not going to do any more political dissection. Let's put it this way. Back then, everyone was gender confused, but about politics. <laughs> Fournier was a staunch Jacobin at this time meaning he was extremely pro-revolutionary and left-wing. Marx and Engels actually credited the Jacobins for being one of the first truly communist movements as well. Make of that what you will. Um, either way, it didn't make much sense for him to die for royalists. Plus, he didn't really fit in. So he switched gears quickly and became a second lieutenant in the 9th Dragoons in the Army of the Alps, a revolutionary army. This was his first station in his 25 years in the army. However, since political ground... So what, like, what year are we talking about now? Uh, 17... Oh, gosh. 1791. Okay. Okay. I, I know that helps you get a picture. I don't do well with numbers. I, I deal yeah, with... Yeah, because since you didn't say when he was born, I wasn't sure exactly when... I'm so tired of starting things with Francois was born. <laughs> but you're right. I didn't mention a birth year. Okay. Cool. <clears throat> cool. Anyway, so like we mentioned before, political grounds shifting constantly. You don't know where you're going to be, um, where you're going to be fighting, where you're going to be next politically. And it wasn't long before Fournier found himself in prison. This was common uh, to be free one day and imprison the next because the narrative changed. So yes, the notorious revolutionary five foot three manlet and father of the reign of terror Francois Robespierre was getting himself into trouble. This is related. This is why Francois Fournier was in prison. So, would you give us a, a, a little bite-sized uh, uh, description of this Robespierre guy? He was a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. Is there any... Uh, <laughs> did you... Did, um, he was a very... Like, he... He was sort of if it was if it was contrary to what had been the social norm, he was involved in advocating for it. So like, um, you know, obviously against the monarchy, but also um, like in favor of broadening political participation, and he also wanted to like get rid of the clergy and. Like, pretty much anything which was a normal part of French society in the royalist period, he wanted to get rid of, no matter no matter what it was. And he ended up having this whole weird, like, pseudo-replacement church that was the, the cult of reason that we talked a little bit about earlier, um, that more or less tried to copy actual Christianity and, like, have 
a church but have it be worshiping reason but you still like would go to church on sunday and hear a sermon about reason or something which a lot of people have actually tried to do in history including the uh the emperor julian the apostate who tried to remodel roman paganism after christianity but like nobody wants to go to a church and not have not get to watch like a cool sacrifice just get to hear like a sermon about zeus nobody's into that you're pagan because there's <laughs> big ass temples and cool sacrifices and you know like festivals and stuff like when you try to take other religions content and put it into the form of christianity it just it's boring as fuck it man. is it is <laughs> um this is also uh there's a there's some research that's been done on the creation of marxism and it's a similar thing um marx wrote a play that's very hard to find and i forget what it's called um in i think it was in his college years that was about um I don't know if it was about this, but it was, it was again, another situation where they were inverting Christianity, like taking all their, the techniques that worked and trying to change all the names and everything like that. And then pretending like that's revolutionary. Um, what was that called? It's going to bother me. It has a really weird name, but yeah, if you search hard enough and believe me, you will not find it in the completed works of Marx. You have to hunt for this thing. Um, but th there was a agreement early on, uh, with Marx that this, this, communist revolution was basically going to take the form of Christianity except it was going to have all different objectives and outcomes which is why it was so hmm. effective let me know if you have you remember anything more about that I, I might have bookmarked it let me take two seconds and just look at my bookmarks because I, I I hunted for so long to find it I just heard it briefly mentioned on a podcast I'm like that sounds like bullshit and then I looked it up and it turns out it was true let me see here Maybe I didn't bookmark it because I didn't want to get my computer infested with more demons. It's hard to track down. I mean, it is it is a well-hidden thing, but you can find it um, on the Internet Archive, actually. It's The name of it is, it's like uh, a shuffle of a, of a demon's name, and that's the main character. Something like that. It's really dark, but anyway. So, Robespierre. <clears throat> Yeah, so and anyway, so to finish up with that, though, at a certain point, he realized that religion needed something religious about it, that having reason be the deity wasn't working. So he tried to invent basically a whole new deistic religion of the called the cult of the supreme being, mm -hmm. which got really, really creepy really fast. Mm -hmm. um, they'd have like festivals dedicated to like an abstract virtue, like frugality or something and would just sort of try to make a religion that was in form similar to like Christianity and that you'd have sermons preached and you would have festivals like you would have saints festivals in Christianity, but everything was, you know, carefully crafted to not reference Christianity in any way. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, Oh no, we're not celebrating Christmas. We're celebrating the, feast day of friendship or some bullshit yeah um it's interesting also that he based a lot of this off the weird sort of proto-deism of the philosopher rousseau yes which is crazy because this is what you this is what happens when people try to take philosophers ideas and actually put them into real life pretty much you know and actually this reminds me again of the uh anabaptist takeover of munster they started out as just weird oh, that shit was so crazy yeah and then at the end of it and we, we covered it 
Um, were you here for that one? No. That was before. I don't think so, was, but I know a lot about it. That was before your time. It ended up like this. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. And it was great, though, because it was finally, like, literally in, like, the throes of the Reformation, it got the Catholics and the Lutherans in the area to be like, I feel like we should uh, team up and do something about these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good episode, guys. Um, you can go back and listen to that uh, Anabaptist takeover of Munster. I think the guy was uh, Jean Van Leiden is who we covered. Um, but there were mm-hmm, there were two, yeah. there were two Johns. So anyway, like George was saying, Robespierre turns this cult of reason into the cult of the supreme being. How the turntables. Uh, this saw him again doing more demonstrations, such as when he announced literally from on high, like from a mountain that God created men to help each other and that religion was a tool used by kings to turn them against each other. He did this dressed in extraordinary garb with feathers in his hat, literally posing with fruit and flowers in his hands. And a side note, actually, this is this is important because this is a phenomenon that, that transcends religion and that's why I said it's probably, like, demonic. It's because it's it's a thought structure that produces the same results even though all the names are different, the places are different, the times are different, but it produces the same kinds of people. That's why I say it, it's lo- probably demonic. Um, because with a Bro, s- my boss just my boss just texted me, "Are grilled cheese a type of pizza?" <laughs> I know he's on like a huge amount of cold medicine right now. <laughs> Thank you for derailing my discussion of demons. <laughs> I mean, I was just sorry. I was so puzzled looking down and reading that that I just had to share it with our listeners. Thank you so much. Um, This is demonic influence on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Freemasons and the Illuminati uh, basically had this philosophy of of, it's not philosophy this way of like copying things in the real world and then putting their own things on them. Um, the, the, The wizards of the world do this all the time. Um, and that's why it's easy to trace much of what was happening back to the Bavarian Illuminati and the uh, and the Freemasons because this all has the structure of a Freemasonic uh, revolution. And I'm not blaming Freemasons of the modern day. I'm saying back then they were the architects of society. And it's in a way to, to say it without being mean about it is they were also architects of people's minds. They were at the forefront of spellcraft and propaganda back then. And it's I just I put a little side note in here because I, I found another connection. Um, this weird chain of people going through a spiritual revolution where they start with God, go through atheism, and end up back at God, minus religion, is demonstrable throughout history. And particularly through this side note, I was thinking of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh's, uh, Rajneesh's culture that we covered a couple of years ago when I was still living in because uh, I saw Wild Wild Country and I thought it was great. That one was crazy. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> Robespierre really does deserve his own episode. Um, but again, it's a tale as old as time, so it doesn't feel right to do it now. So I'll keep this short and maybe we'll come back to him Sunday. Uh, Sunday. Someday. We're not getting back on here Sunday. <laughs> he guillotines so many people, there's a cartoon of him beheading his top executioner, Charles Henry Sanson, who we actually also covered on the show a long time ago. Because he's run out of heads. And again, because, you know, we're hitting all the marks here of classic we talk about dead people. I'm also going to reference that hideous strength. <laughs> there's a uh, there, classic. There's a scene in it where a literal head occupied by demons is demanding heads. 
And so people are cutting each other's heads off to feed its... its... De desire for more death. There's a there's a version of the book uh, that has a cover with the head on it. I think I used it for the art for Philip Van Houten's episode. So anyway, a woman named Cecile 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 Renault was arrested while approaching Robespierre's residence and was accused of attempting to assassinate him. While this was true, um, she didn't even get close, and that hardly justified Robespierre's command that she and her entire family be executed. It's documented that this was too much even for Charles Henry Sanson, who literally vomited after carrying out the deed. I hate these people, George, I hate them. Indeed. I have, I, I finally have an opinion on the show. I hate these people. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> it wasn't long before Robespierre was arrested, generally for being a dick. Um, and that's, that is like a, 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 a completely unprofessional way of saying that, of course, but I don't want to get too much into it because he, because he was just, he was pissing off too many people and he knew they were coming. So he attempted to shoot himself beforehand and only managed to blow his own jaw off. I believe because someone tried to stop him from doing it. Anyway, so he wore a, not that, no, it doesn't matter. He wore a handkerchief around his mouth to cover this wound, and there's a pic, there's pictures of him, and it's like he's finally been shut up. Um, and he had this, this handkerchief or bandage all the way up to his execution when Charles Henry Sanson, ironic, tried to take it off for his execution. Some accounts say Charles tore it off, but others, uh, including Charles' own son, uh, said that he was trying to be careful. Either way, it had it was coming off and it hurt, and Robespierre was screaming like a bitch when the blade dropped, at which point the gathered crowd cheered for 15 straight minutes. So he goes from being the god of this movement to... He killed himself. This is the absolute midwit way to kill yourself. Go around thinking you're the hero, spread stupid ideas that are going to get people killed, and then, well, lo and behold, they come for you. You just got played by the devil. Now, <clears throat> I would like to make something... One day you log into your account and find that your status as moderator has been removed. <laughs> Thank you, kind stranger. <sighs> now, I'd like to make one other thing clear. As I, you know, throw shade at Robespierre. I don't know if this is... And this is... I hate saying this. I don't want to be fair. But I have to be fair. I do know... I do not know if Robespierre was as bad as they say he was. Because this is the nature of revolutionary history. Communists and revolutionaries will lie about a person after their death and exaggerate how good or bad they were to justify whatever it was that they ended up doing to the guy. Problem is, they're definitely already lying about everyone else, so it's impossible to make a complete statement about it. How do you feel about what I just said? Yeah, that's. I think that's... I mean, just look at once somebody gets purged in the Soviet Union, how they're, you know, rewritten so quickly. Yeah, it's not to sound trite, but it is like 1984. They unperson you or say you were a pedophile or something like that. That's another thing that I was thinking about with Lavarenti Beria, who, you know, was accused of being a pedophile in the movie. And I go and read about it. I'm like, this guy was a monster. And then I remember I'm dealing with communists. And I'm like, I can't know because they're just fucking liars. Anyway, <clears throat> a great example of this phenomenon is Lincoln. After he was assassinated, he was Jesus. You couldn't criticize him as easily. Um, or at all, for that matter. 
Whatever the case, however, the reputation Robespierre had was that he was a bad dude. And Francois Fournier Sarlovez was a big fan, which wasn't a good look. So when Robespierre was killed, the reign of terror ended, people started pushing the pendulum the other way, and eventually Francois himself was arrested in 1793, two years after starting his military career in Lyon, uh, for being buddies with Robespierre supporters. You see how all this works? Like, this is why it's so hard to research this stuff. And finally, it is time. It is time to thank the Army of the Dead. The Army of Darkness, the little minions who contribute whatever they can to keep this show alive. This is our Shovel Bearers and Pay the Ferryman tier. So, Shovel Bearers, present yourselves! There they are. You see them? You see them all over there just like slobbering and falling apart because they're kind of zombies, I guess? I don't know. That's the theme we're going with. But our shovel bearers are Ben, Cody, Ka Zach, <laughs> Mike, and Sarah, and Wayward Intellect, which I know is our buddy Mark Steves, who has appeared on this show. Very grateful to all of you. Some of you have been around for a long time. I'd first off, I'd really like to call out some of our longtime patrons who really stuck around. Namely, Zach, you have contributed $358.15 to this show. That's incredible. And Cody, $220 in your career on Patreon as a shovel bearer. Guys, every little bit counts. And I know five bucks doesn't sound like a lot, but if we got, you know, 10 more people who are giving us five bucks a month just buying us a nice coffee, things would be, like, even better. Like, this is super awesome as we have right now. But our very, very lowest tier, and we love you because, again, every little bit counts, is $2. And that's to represent the two coins you put on people's eyes when they cross over the River Styx. Our, this is our pay the ferryman level. So let's just watch from here here on the shore as the ferryman rows them across the River Styx to enter the land of the dead. We currently only have two bodies in the water right now, and that's Bross and Ella. And they look beautiful. The, the, the funeral director really did a good job with these corpses. So... Thank you, Bross and Ellen. <laughs> we made you look as good as possible. Uh, and that does it for all our patron, or all our patrons for this month. If you'd like to contribute to the show, please feel free to give us all your money. Uh, well, actually, don't give us all your money. You know, you need to eat too. We care about you, right? So, <clears throat> if you want to join us, if you want to send a tip on Venmo, 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 you can send it to at WTADP. Any amount is accepted and welcome. Uh, we accept tips in in uh, fine food <laughs> just kidding there's currently no way to send us packages but if if contributions continue to go up or at least stay stable i may be opening a p.o box so we can send stuff in for us to look at on the show but that's just a little added bonus for those of you who are still like eh, i don't know about this aaron guy i don't know if i want to send him my money but anyway that's enough of that thank you to all our time monarchs lore keepers shovel captains shovel bearers and those of you who are simply paying the ferryman, all of your contribu contributions are uh, accepted with great love, and it all goes right back into the show. We recently used um, some of your money to buy George a uh, new, new microphone and a new setup. What we may be doing next is getting him some equipment to reduce the echo in his current recording location, because it is obnoxious. Can we agree it's obnoxious? Yes, I see Bross and Ellen nodding from their coffins over there, and the shovel bearers are cheering, and the shovel captains are leading them leading them away from danger. Uh, the Lorekeepers returning to their books, but the Time Monarchs are still just standing there, brightly shining on their thrones. Thank you all, and uh, we'll get back to the show and finish up. But it has to be done, and we are here to do it.
Right, George? Exactly. Okay. So we don't know how, but Sarlovez, uh, I'm sorry, Francois, he's not Sarlovez yet. Um, he managed to escape and rejoin the army before being kicked out shortly thereafter for being AWOL. He was famous for this. He would just not be places. About six months later, however, he was reinstated, but was inactive. During all this time, he formed a solid reputation for himself for being kind of a loose cannon. That's why I picked him. He's just funny. His extreme Jacobinist opinions disturbed a lot of people around him. They were, and it's like they were being like, dude, like, calm down. <laughs> and he was always ready to duel people over everything. <laughs> um, did you have something you want to say? No. Okay. That was funny. Um, he, he just, he was just a dick. And that's kind of why I like him. <laughs> he's, just, he's just a douche. For example, an officer in the Napoleonic army named Dupont de la Tongue, de la Tongue? I don't know. Dupont, we'll just call him that. Once delivered him some bad news. So Francois challenged him to a duel, which was either a draw or he lost. I couldn't find out. Either way, <laughs> he was dissatisfied. He wasn't happy with how this duel with this this uh, officer, he wasn't happy with how it went. So he would challenge this exact same man to a duel over 30 times over the course of 19 years. Presumably losing God all damn, of them. dude. Yeah. Like, certain point, you got to move on. At a certain point, you'd think DuPont would kill him just to be done I with I certainly it. would have. Yeah. Like, like at a certain point, you got to just be like, you know what, I've I've got places to be. I can't keep doing this every week. Pretty much. So these duels involved everything from pistols to swords, mounted and dismounted. It was ridiculous. Um, Napoleon, who was on this kind of coming around, you might say, even banned duels. Large, not, I don't know if it's largely because of this guy, but it seems connected. It definitely seems connected. They were on a first-name basis. They worked together. Um, but Francois was still throwing down the gauntlet hundreds of times with different people, even after the ban. Um, usually the people he challenged to duels, uh, were people who really had no chance of winning. And he was known for, <laughs> yeah, I know. And he was known for almost randomly picking people to shoot at as some kind of a flex. This is why he gained the nickname, the Demon of the Grand Army, or the Grand Army. Which, let's be honest, that's kind of badass. That is a kind of cool name. It sounds like a Dark Souls boss, which is how I judge the coolness of everything. Yeah, as we've, as we've learned on this show. So anyway, despite all this loose cannonry, he was a successful and effective soldier, and we need to give him credit where credit's due. Once, during the Siege of Lugo in Spain, he held out and took victory when the odds were literally 10 to 1. And the story of this is absolutely hilarious. They're like, yeah, we're going to kill everyone in this town, and he's like, no! And they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and uh, he, wins this, he wins this siege by basically being a hard-ass. And after this, he had a successful run in the Russian campaign, leading the 31st Brigade of Light Cavalry in a cavalry charge in the Battle of Smolensk that got him promoted to General of Division in 1812. My favorite year. Just, <laughs> just kidding, I don't... Excellent. <laughs> I mean, Andrew Jackson. Yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> Everyone knows I'm a simp for Andrew Jackson now. I mean, aren't we? <laughs> anyway, in 1813, however, he got into some shady business again, which was like fraud, petty crimes, dueling. 
and he was called to answer this by God Emperor Napoleon himself for several reports of misbehavior. Francois actually had the balls to argue with freaking Napoleon about it. He was like, I don't care. Like, I don't care if you're Napoleon. I'm dueling. <laughs> so he was promptly stripped of his military rank and sent to prison in Mayence. Miles. I don't know how to pronounce anything. On this carriage ride, however, the carriage train was attacked by Cossacks in the middle of... <laughs> A common 19th century happening. Yes, yes, just you One stop at dangers of the road. <laughs> you stop at Burger King, you get attacked by Cossacks. So anyway, in the middle of this action, Francois took a sword from the hands of a dead soldier and assisted his own captors in defeating the Cossacks and chasing them away. At which point he sat back down in the carriage and demanded to be taken the rest of the way to prison. Kind of badass nice. again. Nice. Yeah, I can, I can respect that. Yeah. Um, and he, he even has a famous, uh, famous, <laughs> famous, he even has a famous, uh, quote that's in French that's like, now, you know, carry on, let's go, or something like that. And I can't remember, I didn't want to even try to pronounce the French, so I just threw it out there. So anyway, while he was in prison, Napoleon was defeated for the first time and went into exile. The Bourbon Restoration began, and let's face it, it needed to happen. <laughs> Uh, there had to be a little bit of restoration. You can't always be revolutioning, you know. Um, so this was a time when the monarchy was restored and a relatively conservative movement began in France. But they'd taken so much ground, calling it conservative is almost n not appropriate. So, and get that, get that big C conservative stuff out of your head about modern American politics. It's not the same thing. So, power became centralized in Paris, and a new form of constitutionalism was brought about. The brother of the executed king, um, was it Charles? At the beginning of this? The king they killed? I can't think of the, uh, the King Louis? Yeah, Louis, yeah. Um, his brother was then made king, put on the throne. It wasn't exactly the same thing, but basically, he, he didn't get an apology. <laughs> he was just put back in power. <laughs> And it looked like things were finally settling down in France. Louis XVIII, the new king of France, yoinked Francois right out of prison and restored his military status. Unfortunately for the Bourbons, uh, the Bourbons, Napoleon was not dead. And when he came back for the 100 days, uh, and ultimately the Battle of Waterloo, Francois uh, Fournier was not forced to fight him, which is kind of interesting. They were like, not buddies, but Francois did not end up fighting Napoleon. He was instead promoted to be Inspector General of the Cavalry and was basically a consultant for the rest of his life. In 1818, for his break... That's the dream. <laughs> yeah, right. A consultant for the rest of his life. In 1818, for his bravery at Lugo, Louis XVIII wanted to add the name Lugo to Francois's surname. He wanted to call him Francois Fournier Lugo. But Francois requested he had the name Sarlovais instead after a medieval hero. Who is this hero? I couldn't find him, but I'm pretty sure someone in France is again pulling out their, their hair, shouting, you know, No, how do they not know of Sarlovais? He became Italian. Just so you know. Apparently. Yes. Just like Napoleon. He was so mad. This Frenchman listening to this podcast, pulling his hair out right now, was so mad, he literally turned into spaghetti. 
many such cases. <laughs> From baguette to spaghetti, that's how it goes. Francois lived in relative peace after these days until January 1827, where he died at the age of 53. As for his long chain of duels, they finally ceased when Pierre Dupont de Letong beat him for the 30th time. After which, <laughs> <laughs> which this is a pretty bad record, let's be honest. At that point, they had to be like bros, you know, like they're just like fist bumping. All right, let's do this. Um, but at the end of this 30th duel, Pierre made him swear to just let it go. Um, which Fournier did to his credit. The 1977 movie The Duelists is about this very story. I have never seen it, but if it has all 30 duels in it, that would be crazy. <laughs> so also... That would just be impressive at that point. Yes, and one final note before we wrap this up. Historians have preserved Francois's pistols, and they are on display at the Musée de l'Armée, Museum of the Army in Paris which is a military museum, which looks amazing. I honestly can't even believe I've never heard of it because just looking at videos of that thing, I'm like, oh, I'm like drooling. Like, oh, look at all that history. You know, helmets and guns from the era. Like, Oh, oh yeah, no, it's it's a famous museum. It's I, one of the few things that might tempt me to ever go to Paris. Yeah. You might have to take a visit uh, someday and send me pictures. So anyway, that's kind of where I wrapped up on France because I sensed that this was getting to be a long one. Um... The revolution, how would how would you characterize the end of the French Revolution? Well, I mean, it. it's hard to say where it ended because France has been through more national governments than most people who've been in an industrial accident can count on their fingers. Because I think <laughs> we're on what? Are we on the Fifth Republic now? I have no idea. There's like the third empire and however many republics and they, they switch national governments so much, which is amazing since they had an extremely stable national government for like 800 years. And then in the last hundred and then in like a hundred years, switch national governments like a dozen times. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, again, but I would like to also say before we close out on this, uh, if you are French and if you have listened to this whole thing and you've been patient with us, I tip my beret to you. That is it. <laughs> Baguette. Baguette. <laughs> Hoist your baguettes in the honor of France and the poor Frenchman who didn't make it. Um, yep. Uh, on that note, I think it's probably time to head to the service. What do you think? I think it is. We don't have any baguettes down here. Get them in, because it's almost over. You weren't you weren't uh, joking when you said most of the episode wasn't about the guy. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> when you texted me that, you were not joking. So, Aaron, if you had to liberate France in a deadly duel with Macaron, or Macron, or whatever his name is, um, <laughs> what weapon would you use to fight him, and how would you secure your power as the new emperor of France? Uh, Macron. Um, hmm. It's funny, I write these questions, and I never think of the answer ahead of time. But I've said that before, probably, so now I just sound silly. I think I would probably... 
for the weapons in the duel, I think we would have to use memes to fight each other. And I know I could win because he's ridiculous and I'm a podcaster. Um, so I can just lampoon him from afar. As far as securing my power as the new emperor of France, uh, I think I would simply ship a baguette to every door. I'm, I'm getting the baguette jokes in before we're done because it's over after this, right? <laughs> I mean, you are, you know, you are running, running out of time. Yeah. Running out of time. Running out of baguette time. And if you had to liberate France in a deadly duel with Macron, what weapon would you use to fight him? And how would you secure your power as the new emperor of France? Hmm. See, I'm deciding if I can say what I was going to say, you know, on the air. <laughs> well, hmm. uh, how bad? I was gonna, uh, well, I was going to say, you know, practical. I want to choose something that gives me the best chance of winning. And I think that would actually be if our duel was fought by our respective significant others, because his wife is like in her 70s. He's like 20 years older than him. And my soon to be wife is actually younger than me. So I think we'd have a really good chance there. So you would basically send your woman to have a cage fight with Macron's wife? <laughs> yes, because his wife is ancient. Well, may the best she woman win. She looks like his mom. She looks like his mom. It's weird. I, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that shit. Um, how would you secure your your power as the emperor? Uh, hmm. Mm hmm. Glass Paris. That's true. That's true. Gla <laughs> Alternatively, somehow get somebody else to glass Paris because then it could be sort of a rallying thing. It's like, oh no, we've got to avenge Paris, but also <laughs> Paris is gone, so it's kind of a win-win. <laughs> So if I could convince the British to glass Paris somehow, we can have a good old-fashioned war against the British, and also Paris is gone. On that note, and I think I'm it's... proud to be an American, <laughs> no. where at least we have AC. Oh my god. <laughs> but on that note, I think we've made fun of enough people and have hurt enough feelings for the day, so let's, let's bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably Parisian, so consider funding some of our show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Patreon's not your thing. You can send us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. We accept baguettes and I'm done. I'm done, I promise. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of an angry, dueling Frenchman play you out. Joe Lee was a soup merchant just trying to sell spicy noodles. Until a violet gang killed his wife and took his prized wonton soup recipe by force. Seeking revenge, Joe Lee burned it all on a mission for blood. Dead People Pictures is proud to bring you its most action-packed kung fu movie yet. Wonton Bloodlust, The French Connection. Starring Jackie Chan, Chuck Norris, and Alec Baldwin, it's fast as lightning. Get ready.